We're in Matthew chapter 5, as you probably already know. So you can turn on over there to Matthew 5. By the way, if you do miss a Sunday, most of the messages are on the the, um, website with the outlines and everything, so you can catch up there. Last week, we looked at the idea of being thirsty and hungering for righteousness and how that was such an elementary thing to the life of a Christian that their desire should be one for righteousness and not for the world. And we looked at different um, uh, ways that um, that expresses itself in Scripture. And uh, we, we ended last week with asking the question, how do you know if you're uh, hungering or thirsting for righteousness? And um, we asked these uh, five questions. Are you dissatisfied with yourself? Does anything external satisfy you? Do you have an appetite for God's Word? Are the things of God sweet to you? Is there a hunger? And is your hunger and thirst unconditional? In other words, it's never quenched. Uh, You always want a desire to grow more in your relationship with the Lord. Um, It's interesting as we study the Sermon on the Mount and we know that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as King. That's the whole thrust of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is really His edict, His kind of manifesto of His kingdom to the people who are going to be part of His kingdom. And Christ proclaims basically a twofold message in the Beatitudes. First of all, how you enter His kingdom. He wants people to understand how to enter His kingdom. And then once you arrive in His kingdom, He wants you to understand how to live as a subject in His kingdom. And that's, that's important. Some people are just interested in entering the kingdom of God, but they don't want to live it. Other people are all interested in the external how to live it, but they've never really entered it. Um, and we've looked at in the past week that only those in verses 3 to 6 of Matthew 5, only those who are broken, it says, in spirit, those who are mourning over their sin, those who are meek, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, only those people who have those attributes, those attitudes in their lives are part of the kingdom of God. Once they've entered, they continue to have those attitudes. It doesn't stop. Matthew 5, 7, our text for this morning says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You think of that word mercy. You know, you hear older people once in a while, mercy, mercy, mercy. They just kind of say it as a phrase to something when they're upset or something overwhelms them. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is interesting because all of the other Beatitudes, it, it, it's just like the other ones. It contains a twofold pattern. In other words, you have to be merciful to get into God's kingdom. You have to seek mercy to get into God's kingdom. And when you're part of His kingdom, you'll show mercy to others. You have to seek His mercy to get into His kingdom. But once you're part of His kingdom, you will that will be evident in your life. You will show mercy to others. See, in the day that Jesus lived, the religious practices that Jesus encountered in His day were very you might say superficial, very external, uh, very ritualistic. Judaism is a very ritualistic religion. 
the Jewish religions, religious leaders of the day thought that somehow God's kingdom could be obtained through their good deeds. And you know, that's not too far from where we're at today in a lot of churches. People go to church every Sunday thinking somehow they're earning favor with God because they went to church or they went to confession or they did something to help someone. Uh, you know, it's very important to understand that these, these Jewish leaders, religious leaders of the day, thought that somehow what they did earned favor with God. They were proud. They were indifferent. They were selfish individuals. And they thought somehow that their formalized religion qualified them for leadership under Messiah's rule. So when the Messiah came, they thought, well, surely we will be part of his entourage because look at us. Look at how we do this and how we dress and how we do that. And it was all about them. And while they really appeared, you might say, righteous, they appeared, they had the appearance of righteousness, there was really no true righteousness found in them. Uh, the Lord said to them in Matthew 23, 7, listen to this, Matthew 23, 7, He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like white sepulchers, or tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. What a stinging rebuke. John the Baptist even said to the group of, of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees in Matthew 3, 7 to 12, if you turn back a couple pages there in your Bible, Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12, John the Baptist said, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, you think that he would welcome them. Oh, come on, boy, more people. This is good. Look at what he says to them. You brood of vipers. <laughs> That's, that's, not, that's not very an endearing term. Hopefully, if you're visiting here with us this morning, somebody didn't come up and say, Oh, you viper, you. We're glad you're with us. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think, look at this, to say to yourselves, they're fooling themselves, that's what he's telling them, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, that's no big deal. God can create children of Abraham just like that. Verse 10, And even now the axe is laid root to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We don't like to hear that. We like to think that all the external things we do, even as Christians... Sometimes God looks down and says, Ooh, I'm impressed. <laughs> That's not the way it is, beloved. John spoke of this fiery judgment that will come upon those whose religion is only external. A lot of people ask, Are you religious? And I say, No. Because my definition of religion is man, it's an invention of man to try to reach out to a holy God. Every world religion has a, a list of do's and don'ts. You gotta follow the do's and don'ts or, or God's not pleased. Christianity's not that way, beloved. 
It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who offers us forgiveness and pardon for our sin. See, the Sermon on the Mount confronts such people as these. And it confronts them really with what really matters in life. Ask yourself this morning, are you broken in spirit? Are you humble before God? Are you mournful over your sin? When you sin, is it just like, hey, I'm covered by God's grace, let's party? Or are you mourning over your sin? Because you know it grieves the heart of God. And we all sin in a myriad of ways every day. Are we meek? Remember, meekness is power under control. It's understanding who God is and understanding who we are. Are we hungering for righteousness? Are we merciful? Are we pure in heart? Are we peaceable? See, all those things are internal qualities that God gives to those who are part of His kingdom. And all those things mean a lot to God. Christ basically, with one sentence, dismissed all those worthless external activities that the Jewish leaders of the day thought that they were getting kudos with God. He basically flushed them down the toilet and said, you know what, that, that doesn't impress me. That doesn't impress my Father. It's important that we understand the plan that God has. See, Christ always emphasized what's on the inside of a person. That's what really counts. What's on your inside? Don't think you're impressing God by coming here and sitting here on a Sunday morning and hearing a sermon. What's on your inside? I don't know what you're thinking about right now. You could be thinking about, well, that's a weird suit he's got on or his hair's out of place. Well, obviously, you couldn't be thinking that. But, you know, he said, well, he's got some sunburn or, or whatever. You could be thinking about a ball game. You could be thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. I don't know what you're thinking about. But God does. God knows what's on your inside. He knows your heart. He knows why you're here. Are you here because if you didn't come, you'd feel guilty? Is that the only reason you're here? Are you here to give something to the body of Christ? Are you here because you know you're gifted in a way that, that God has specifically gifted you and He's brought you to this fellowship to participate in worship together with others because He knows that you have what it takes to offer that other person that's also here what they need today as you minister to each other. See, that's what it's about on Sunday. It's not just coming and hearing a message. It's about coming together, preparing your heart Saturday night and even Sunday morning and saying, God, how are you going to use me today in the fellowship here at Grace? How are you going to use me to reach out and shake somebody's hand that maybe just needs a little word of encouragement? How are you going to use me to maybe be a role model for a younger person? How are you going to use me? See, it's what's on the inside. It counts. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is not concerned with how we behave. <laughs> Don't you go home and say, oh, Steve said that you know it doesn't matter what we do because God doesn't worry about our behavior. It's just our attitude of our heart. That's not right either. See, Jesus is very much concerned how we behave. What He's saying is His emphasis, Jesus' emphasis here in the Beatitudes is those things that are on the inside will produce the proper behavior on the outside. That's what he's saying. Righteousness on the inside produces what? Right behavior. A person can try to act right, can try to act correctly without being internally right with God. And we call that what? We call that legalism. 
That's the person that has their little do's of don'ts when they, you know, so-called become a Christian. Oh, here's how, here's how you know a Christian. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't date, they do, and all, all this other stuff. Okay? Well, I'm not saying that that behavior is wrong in, 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 in the eyes of God. Obviously, some of those things are. But it's not about what you do. It's about the attitude of your heart. But the attitude of your heart will lead. It will live itself out in what you do. Christ wants right actions based on the right attitude. He doesn't want us to grudgingly serve Him. I mean, I speak to some people that are serving in the body of Christ and you think that they're going to a funeral. Ah, oh, gee, I've got to set up this thing. Oh, God, I've got to do this. Oh, man, it's such a pain. You know, I've got to come early. My answer is, you know what? Don't do it. Somebody else will do it. And they'll do it with joy in their heart. And they'll get a reward for it. See, the thing is, if you're serving God with an attitude, if you're serving God with a grudge, if you're serving God just because somehow you think that He needs you, you're losing your reward. It's all for naught. You might get a slap on the back after a sermon, but if I'm up here preaching a sermon without the right attitude and, and without the, the, the humble spirit before God... That's all I'm going to get is a smack on the back. I'm not going to get anything when I go to see God. He's going to say, what is that? It's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. A bunch of words. It meant nothing. Because your attitude, your heart attitude wasn't right. Christ wants right actions based on right attitudes. Nobody wants to have a child that obeys just to obey. They want their child to obey because they understand that it grieves the heart of God. It grieves them as parents when they disobey. They're placing themselves in danger when they disobey. You don't want just a robot for a child. Well, after he taught the Beatitudes, Jesus did speak about actions in the Sermon on the Mount. But he based all those actions on the premise of what he's teaching us right now in these verses. And it's built on the right kind of heart attitude. I love what... Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, a Christian is something before he does anything. A Christian is something before he does anything. Don't you be sitting there thinking, well, that's all I do. That's what makes me a Christian. No, it's not. It's what God has done on your behalf. You have to be declared righteous and just before God before you can do anything that would be pleasing to Him. He also said this, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he says, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. See, so many times we want it, we want it the other way around. When we control our Christianity, that's when you fall into legalism. But when we let what's inside us placed there as a gift by the Holy Spirit, by God, then we possess true spirituality. Then we are doing something that's pleasing to God. Because Christianity isn't a facade. It's not something you just play at. It's a relationship with Christ and it transforms your life at the very center of your being. And from there, it manifests itself out in actions every day. God has never been interested in superficiality. He wasn't interested in the, the, just the, the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews tells us that. He's not interested in any of our spiritual activity unless our hearts are right with Him. As a matter of fact, even in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, God tells the Israelites, you know what? Why don't you just stop all your worship? 
Just stop doing it. It's making me sick. Stop all your sacrifices. Stop all the fancy music. He says it's not worth it because your hearts aren't right. God is concerned with our motives. And when we have the right motives, when we have the right attitude, that leads to the right behavior. Jesus rebuked the religious externalists of His day. And you see that in Matthew 5, every man and every woman needs to recognize in 5.3 their own spiritual bankruptcy before God. You need to go to God and say, I need your help. There's no way out of this. I'm a sinful person. We need to recognize that we're spiritually destitute, like beggars begging for a crumb of bread. And we have nothing in our hand to offer God. Not one thing. And our only hope is to reach out and beg God to do what we can't do for ourselves. Forgive our sin. Verse 4 in chapter 5, Matthew warns us against being satisfied with self-righteousness. Rather, we're to mourn over our sinfulness. See, some Christians think that they, they reach a certain plateau and they don't deal with sin anymore. You know what? They're lying to themselves. They're kidding themselves. Every one of us is a sinner saved by grace and we'll continue to sin until Christ takes us home and we get that glorified body. But what's our attitude over our sin? Are we broken over it? Are we mournful? Verses 5 and 6 point out the need for meekness in the light of God's holiness. When you look at how holy God is, I don't see how somebody could refer to Him as the big man upstairs or whatever. I mean, He is such a holy God. He's perfect in every way. We're so far below Him. We need to recognize our condition. We need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, it's interesting because these first four Beatitudes that we've already dealt with, they deal with inner attitudes, if you look at them. How a person sees himself before God. Are you mourning over your sin? Are you humble? Are you broken in spirit? Are you meek? Are you hungering for righteousness? The fifth Beatitude, the one we're looking at today, mercy, begins Christ's teaching about how this manifests the first four. He's saying if you have the first four, you're going to see it in your life because all of a sudden you're going to see mercy popping up where normally mercy wouldn't pop up. And the reason you're going to see it is because God has shown you that you need to be broken in spirit. You're mournful over your sin. You're meek and you're hungering for righteousness. And as a result of that, you will be merciful to others. It's rightly said that those who in poverty of spirit acknowledge their need of mercy because to show mercy to others, those who mourn over their sin, begin while they mourn to wash their hearts clean with the tears of penitence. The, the, the meek spontaneously make peace. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, what's the significance of mercy? When Jesus said, happy or blessed are the merciful, His Jewish audience probably fell off their chairs. They weren't sitting on chairs, but they probably, probably startled them. They probably would have been surprised because you know what? Both the Jews and the Romans were anything. They were anything but merciful. Anything but merciful. They were egotistical. They were self-righteous. They were condemning. See, a lot of people, when they come to Matthew 5, 7, they, they want to twist it and they want to turn it and they want to make it into this humanistic thing. 
They speak of, of the mercy as this human virtue, something that we have, saying kind of like, well, if you're good to every everyone, then everyone will be good to you. Even the Jewish Talmud quotes the Rabbi Gamaliel as saying of mercy as a human virtue. He says this, whenever you have mercy, God will have mercy on you. If you have not mercy, God will, uh, neither will God have mercy on you. Some people think that if you are good toward God, He will be good toward you. You may think that this morning. And to a certain extent, that is true. But don't try to put God on the spot. You know, you don't want to play chess with God. You're going to lose. You don't go to God and say, well, if you do this, God, you know, if I do this for you, then you have to do this for me. We don't have any place to barter with God. One paraphrase of Matthew 5 says this, if people see us care, they will care. That's a very weak paraphrase. It's just not that simple. It's true that if we honor God, He will care for us. But you know what? Unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way, does it? How many of you had, had mercy on somebody only to have that person spit in your face? It always doesn't work that way. The Romans, on the other hand, they glorified justice. They glorified courage. They glorified discipline and power. That's what they looked at as their gods, and they lifted that up. They didn't view mercy as something that was of value. They considered those who were merciful to be weak and impotent. I mean, they lived in a society when a baby was born, the father could basically say, boom, the baby lives, or nope, kill it. And no one would question it. It was the right thing to do in their mind. They lived in a society when a husband could just kill his wife if he wanted to. Burnt the chicken again, that's it. You're dead. I mean, can you imagine that? And it was the right thing to do. Nobody questioned it. I mean, there's even societies today that they don't go to that extent maybe, but some pretty much close, close to that. Well, it was mercy was modeled by Christ. When you look at the life of Christ, He always reached out to others. Because Jesus Christ was probably the most merciful human being who ever lived. He really was when you look at His life. He never did anything out of malice to harm someone. He reached out to both the sick, the ill, and He healed them. He enabled the crippled to walk and the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. He showed love not only to those who thought they were righteous, but He showed love to tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards. He redeemed them. He set them free. And He put them on their feet. I mean, we serve a Lord, beloved, who wept over those with their sorrow. He made the lonely feel comfortable. He gathered little children in His arms and He loved them. Luke 7 records as Jesus entered a city, there was a funeral procession that went by and He saw a mother weeping because her only son was dead. Back then, that was a big deal. If you lost your husband and you lost your boys, there's nobody to take care of you. You were basically destitute. 
She was a widow. She had neither her husband nor her son to care for her. You know what Jesus did? You read that. He stopped the whole procession. And he went out and he put his hand on the casket. And he raised her son back to life. What an incredible thing to do. He didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to be merciful to someone. He wanted to heal someone. He wanted to touch their life in a way that nobody else could. In John 8, verses 3-11, to some scribes and Pharisees brought Christ, you remember the story, to a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery. And when her accusers basically had been confronted with their sin, doesn't say why, but I think that's what happened, had left her. They dropped her stone, they left. And he says, woman, where are those who accuse you? Obviously, she was looking down. She didn't even know they left. No man's condemned you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a gracious, what a merciful thing to do. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw Christ eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, what did they do? They, they talked to His disciples and they said, How is it that He eats and He drinks with tax collectors and sinners? That's disgusting. We would never do that. We're righteous religiously. He's continually sought out those in need. He just didn't turn a shoulder to them. He was also despised by other. Mercy basically given isn't necessarily mercy returned. You have to get that in your head. You don't just, you're not just merciful to somebody and then you stand back and say, okay. You know, it's, it's kind of like once in a while with the grandkids, you know, you, you do something and, and, uh, and they come and, or they do something and, you know, they come and apologize. I'm sorry, Grandpa. I'll just say, okay, that's cool. They're just standing there and look at me. Well, no, Grandpa, you have to say it. I'm like, say what? Say you're forgiven. So you have to do that or they don't understand. That's the process that they go through in their head. But it kind of, you know, that's just, it's kind of like a, a rote thing to them. They don't understand, obviously, the full thing of it. So mercy given isn't always mercy returned. Our Lord was the most merciful person who ever lived. And yet you look at His life and at the end, people scream for His blood. They wanted Him executed. If mercy carried its own reward, then the Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't have had to have been nailed to the cross. He wouldn't have had to have been spat upon. He wouldn't have been cursed because He was the most merciful person who ever lived. Christ received absolutely no mercy from those he gave mercy to. The merciless Roman and, 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 and Jews of the day, the system united to kill him. And I'm just bringing that up because I want you to understand this morning that mercy is not a human virtue that brings about its own reward. That's very important to understand. Mercy is not a human virtue that brings about its own reward. See, our Lord's emphasis was that if a person is merciful to others, God will be merciful to him. You notice it says, it doesn't say, if a person is merciful to others, they will be merciful back to him. It doesn't say that. It says, if you're merciful to someone who doesn't deserve it, and that's what mercy is, then God will be merciful to you. Not necessarily the people that you're being merciful to. God is the subject of that second phrase in 5.7, Matthew 5.7. Not other people. Well, what does it mean to be merciful? This, this word in the noun uh, form in the Greek, it's only used twice in the New Testament, which is kind of interesting. In Matthew 5, and it's also used in Hebrews 2.17, 2, uh, which says, In all things it behooved Jesus to make 
to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Those are the two noun forms of this verb. Christ is that great illustration of mercy because he intercedes for us before the Father. He's the one that goes to the cross, not us. It's from him that mercy flows. Well, the verb form of that word, merciful, is a little more prevalent. It's used many times in the Bible. And it means to have mercy upon, uh, to give help to the wretched, or secure the miserable. That's the idea. It's a very, you might say, broad definition of that word. Anything you do of benefit to someone in need is an act of mercy. It really is. See, we tend to think of mercy as the forgiveness of God and salvation. But it has a much broader application. It speaks of compassion in action. That's kind of what that means. Compassion in action. Mercy goes beyond merely feeling compassion. See, a lot of times we may feel compassionate towards somebody. You may be driving downtown San Francisco and you got people standing there at the corner. You know, begging for money or food or whatever. And you have to be wise about this. You don't just go and, you know, give them ten bucks so they can go get high or drink their alcohol or smoke their cigarettes. But we live in a society that we can drive by people like that all day and it doesn't affect us. Mercy goes beyond merely feeling compassion. It's, it's one thing to sit at a red light and look out at that guy, that individual holding the placard there with a hat or whatever, a jar, and then say, Oh, you know, oh boy, I feel bad for that guy. And then drive off. It's another thing to feel compassion and then say, wow, you know what? In sympathy, in compassion, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to help this individual. Buy him a sandwich. Put some gas in their car. Do something practical for him. It's doing something good to anyone who has a need. That's what mercy is. It doesn't speak of kind of a, a pity that we have on somebody but it speaks of actually doing something. True mercy is genuine compassion with a pure and unselfish motive that reaches out to those in need. That's what true mercy is. And Jesus meant that the people in His kingdom don't condemn others, they show mercy. Ouch. That's what He wants us to do. They don't set themselves above anyone. They stoop down to help others. Does that characterize your life? The Lord indicted basically the Jewish religious leaders of the day by what He said. Because they elevated themselves above others. They looked at themselves as better than others. They didn't give of themselves to anyone. In Matthew 15, our Lord spoke of those who wouldn't give to support their own parents because they supposedly committed their money to God. And he said to the scribes and Pharisees, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? See, they were merciless even to their own parents. See, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have to be merciful. That's what we're called to do. You will think the thoughts and you'll feel the emotions of those who are in need and you'll respond in a tangible, loving way. One who's truly merciful gives a hungry man food. Or maybe a lonely person companionship. See, it's one thing to say, oh man, that you know, poor guy or that poor guy, you know, she's all by herself, has nobody to talk to. Feel bad. It's another thing 
show up and, 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 and you know, just be there. We'll give love to someone who asks for it. Being merciful is meeting a need, not just filling it. Well, let's look at mercy in comparison to other qualities. In comparison to other qualities. Let's look at mercy and forgiveness. Sometimes we get these terms all kind of mixed up in our heads. And each term is, is a specific, has a specific meaning and a specific thing. Let's look at mercy and forgiveness together for a second. In Titus 3.5 it says, According to His mercy He saved us. In Ephesians 2.4 and 5 it says, God who is rich in mercy has made us alive. See, the thing I want you to understand when we're talking about mercy and forgiveness, that mercy is present when God saves us. It has to be. It is His mercy that allows Him to redeem us. Daniel 9.9, it says, To our Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. Psalm 130.1-7. We read that this morning. Out of the depths have I cried unto you, Lord. Hear my voice. Down there further, he says, For the Lord, with the Lord there is mercy. A fountain of mercy. Mercy even goes beyond forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the only expression of mercy. Uh, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to get your arms around because God's mercy can't be narrowed down to this little thing. It's a huge thing. It's infinitely more than forgiveness alone. Psalm 119.64 says, The earth, O Lord, is full of Your mercy. Genesis 32.10 says, Jacob said to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies which You have shown unto Your servant. 2 Samuel 24.14, David said, God's mercies are great. Nehemiah 9.19 Nehemiah acknowledged that God's mercy to His people. He said, uh, You and your manifold mercies forsook them not. Psalm 69.13, O God, in the multitude of Your mercy, hear us. Lamentations 3.22-23, It's because of the, of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. Mercy and forgiveness go together. But mercy is much broader than forgiveness. Mercy and love go together as well. See, you have to understand that forgiveness flows out of mercy and mercy flows out of love. If you were to do a little chart, you could put love at the bottom. That branches up into mercy and then mercy branches up into forgiveness. The Apostle Paul said that God is rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, Ephesians 2.4. So love is greater than mercy. Love can do more than just show mercy. If you were going to put them side by side, mercy and love, think of it this way. Mercy requires a problem to act. It has to have a problem to act. Love can act even when there isn't a problem. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, but neither one of them require mercy from each other. The Father loves the elect angels and they love Him, but neither one need mercy See, love encompasses mercy. Think of it this way. Mercy is a physician. Love is a friend. Mercy responds to a need. Love acts out of affection. Mercy, you might say, is reserved for times of trouble. Love is constant. However, there's no mercy without love because mercy flows out of love. God's great love is poured out on our need through His mercy. 
See, when we are righteous, beloved, and we don't need God's mercy, does He still love us? Sure. Even though we don't need His, His mercy. When we're, we're right with God, we don't need His mercy at that point in time. He still loves us. They're two separate things. When we're righteous, we don't need God's mercy, but He still loves us. And He'll love us throughout eternity. Even when we don't need mercy there either. But for now, one way God shows His love for us is through His mercy. Another one people get mixed up a little bit is mercy and grace. Mercy and grace aren't they the same thing? No, there's a little chart there in your outline that kind of shows you what the differences are. Read this little illustration. You probably heard it before. Napoleon was moved by this mother's plea. Her son got in trouble, bad trouble, second time. Came before Napoleon and uh, basically the, the sentence was to be deaf. It's a pretty serious offense. And the justice demanded desk, uh, death. And, and the, the woman implored for her son. He says, she said, I do not ask for justice. I plead for mercy. But the emperor said, you know what? He doesn't deserve mercy. He doesn't deserve it. And the mother cried back, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. See, that compassion and that clarity of that mother's logic prompted Napoleon to respond, well then, you know what? I will have mercy. And he pardoned her son. See, mercy and its derivatives always deal with pain and distress, which are the result of sin. Grace deals with the sin itself. Mercy deals with the symptoms of disease, while grace deals with the disease itself. Mercy offers relief from punishment, where grace offers pardon for the crime. Grace removes a person's sin, while mercy eliminates the punishment due for the sin. It's two different things. You remember the story in Luke 10, where Jesus tells of a Jewish man who was robbed and he was beaten, basically thrown into a ditch alongside of the road. And the priest went by and he didn't want to help, so he just kept walking. And the Levite went by and did the same, just kept walking. But a Samaritan went by, he saw the, the, the man who was beaten up and he stopped and he cared for him. First thing he did, he bound up the man's wound and he poured oil on him. That was mercy. That was meeting the man's affliction. And then he went on and he rented a room for him at the inn so that he could have a place to stay. That was grace. See, by mercy, the Samaritan man dealt with the beaten wounds, but by grace, he provided that individual a better condition. God's mercy deals with the negatives of our sin, but His grace does something positive for us. His mercy says no hell, but His grace says heaven. Two different things. His mercy pities us. His grace pardons us. They're two sides of the same coin offered to us in salvation. Mercy and grace. One of the last things here, mercy and justice. It's interesting. Sometimes we get these, like I said, things mixed up. And there's a story that's told of a politician. He went to a, uh, getting ready for a campaign, campaign and he went to a uh, photographer. Sat through all the, you know, settings. They took all these pictures. A week later, he gets these pictures, these proofs. And this politician looked at him and he was just ticked off. <laughs> Disgusting pictures. He went back to the photographer and said, you know what, this picture does not do me justice. 
And the photographer looked at him without even wincing and said, Sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> See, God's mercy is completely just. God's mercy is completely just. God says to the sinner, You know what? I know that you've done terrible things. But I love you. And by mercy, you know what? I forgive you. He can do that and be completely just because He came into the world in human form and He paid the price through His Son that justice requires His death on a cross. And when Jesus died, God's justice was satisfied. God said there could be no forgiveness of sin without the what? Shedding of blood. There had to be a perfect sacrifice to bear the sin of the world. And Jesus was that sacrifice. He's the one that came and lived the perfect life. Took on human form. God's mercy is not a foolish sentimentality that just kind of looks at our sin and says, oh, okay, I'll just excuse it. I'll give you an excuse for it. That's not what God's mercy does. I think we think of that a lot of times even in the church. We look at God's mercy and His forgiveness and we just kind of say, oh, He just excuses our sin. No, He doesn't. A terrific price had to be paid for our sin and that's the death of His Son. The only time God ever extends mercy to anyone is through Christ because He's the one that paid for our sin. Some people think that mercy overrides the demands of justice and it means that people don't need to pay for wrongdoing when you're merciful. That's not true. Stop and think. King Saul showed that kind of mercy by sparing King Agab. After David's son Absalom killed his brother Amnon, David showed a false and, and sentimental mercy toward Absalom by letting him off easy. David sowed the seeds of rebellion in Absalom's heart. See, God never violates His justice and His holiness just to be merciful. He extends His mercy only because of His justice and that it's been satisfied. Big difference. There are people in the church today who sin against God, but you know what? They aren't willing to acknowledge their sin. And yet, they're the first in line expecting Him to be merciful to them. doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, James 2.10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all of it. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. So if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you're a transgressor of the law. James meant basically if you break only one of God's law, you've broken them all. It doesn't work. Oh, you, you have more sins than I do. It doesn't work that way. We can't think of our sin that way. Verse 12 and 13 of James 2 says, So speak you and, and so do as they shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. See, there's a, a merciless judgment awaiting those who do not accept the sacrifice of Christ. If you're looking at Christ on the cross and you're saying, I don't accept that, there's no other answer. God won't show sentimental mercy to someone who shows up at His door and says, oh, Christ, who's that? I did my own thing. Sorry, there's no forgiveness there for you. If we want God to be merciful to us, we must confess our sins and we must turn from them. Repentance is part of that. You know, throughout Scripture, those who are merciful 
are commended. The merciful don't tolerate sin. They recognize their sin will be punished. But they do bear the insults of evil men and women with hearts of compassion, hearts full of compassion. Those who are merciful are sympathetic, forgiving, gracious, loving. Psalm 37:21 says, "The wicked borrow, the payeth not again, but the righteous shows mercy and gives." We're to be merciful, we're to be gracious, we're to be loving, and we're to forgive those who are truthful. If one of our children came up to us and said, you know what, I sinned, I, I did this, I know it's wrong. Hopefully, as a parent, you would show them mercy. But if you found one of your children doing something wrong <laughs> and they denied it and you caught them, then what? Then punishment. They need discipline. Abraham merci mercifully helped deliver his nephew Lot after Abraham had been wronged by him. Joseph showed mercy toward his brothers and he met their needs after they had treated him badly. Moses, basically, his, when his, uh, Moses' sister Miriam rebelled against him, God afflicted her with leprosy. And in mercy, in, in mercy Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Heal her now. David spared Saul's life twice. See, a merciful person reaches out to forgive, to care for, to help others. He doesn't step on the other people's necks while they're down and crush them. And say, yeah, serves you right. Cross me again. The merciful people are always commended in Scripture, but the merciless, those who have no mercy, they're always condemned. Psalm 109, 14-16 says, Let the iniquity of the merciless person fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be be before the Lord continually, that He may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because He remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. God always identified with the poor and the needy. When judgment comes, He will tell the merciless, Depart from Me, you accursed, for I was hungry, you gave Me no food. I was thirsty, you gave Me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you took Me not in. Naked, you clothed Me not. Sick, in prison, you visited Me not. And they respond in Matthew 25, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirst or strange or, or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto you? They asked Him, when did this happen? And Jesus replied, when they did not give food, water, clothing to those who represented Him, they were also refusing Him. See, God identifies with those who reach out, not with those who just grab and take. We need to reject what our sinful, corrupt society tells us about getting everything we can get. Get the gusto, you know, live every day, fullest, all that stuff. It's a lie from the pit of hell. God tells us to give everything we can, even to those who offend us. Someone makes a mistake, fails to pay a debt, or doesn't return something he's borrowed from you, what are we called to do? Take out vengeance? No, we're called to be merciful. That's the character of someone who's part of God's kingdom. And over and over and over again in Scripture we see that. Romans 1 is a good example. The ungodly are characterized by being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, insolent, proud, boasters, inventors of all evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural effect, affection, implacable, and also unmerciful. You notice the last thing in that list, the climax of that whole list, shows up in being unmerciful. We who have received the mercy of God, beloved, are demanded of us. It's, it's, it's in Scripture over and again that we need to be merciful. We don't deserve our privileged position in God's kingdom. He, he grants us mercy, therefore we can't be cruel to others when we're so dependent on God's mercy, on His forgiveness. Well, the source of mercy, quickly, it's a, it's a gift of God. Mercy is a gift of God. It's not a human attitude. People can't initiate mercy on our own. It doesn't work that way. God gifts us with this. Many people want to be blessed by God, but you know what? They don't want to do what He says. Oh, I want to receive the blessings of God. Yeah, I want God to bless me, but I'm not going to do what He says. People often want God's mercy, but they don't want it on His terms. The only people who have mercy are those who exemplify the qualities of these first four Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? And so forth. The righteousness of God gives to those who seek it. When, it, when He gives it, it comes with a capacity, a capacity for mercy. When He transforms us, He gives us that capacity to be merciful. God is merciful and Christians are, when, and Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That allows us to be merciful. Sometimes we get things confused. You know, God has two kinds of attributes. Two kinds of attributes. One of them is absolute. And there's those that are relative. If you stop and think about it, His absolute attributes are what? Are His love, His truthfulness, His holiness. In other words, if, if no one existed on earth at all, He never created anybody, God would still be loving, He'd still be truthful, and He'd still be holy. Because those are absolute attributes. But when He created man, His absolute attributes took on a relative character. In other words, His truth manifests itself out to us as what? As faithfulness. His holiness as justice. His love as grace and mercy. God is rich in mercy and He's the one who dispenses it. It's important that we remember that. Also, the source of His mercy is the cross of Christ. Donald, Bar, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and it became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking Him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he has already had when Christ died. That is the totality of his mercy. There could be not any more mercy. God can now act us, toward us in grace because he has already had all the mercy upon us. The fountain is now open and flowing and it flows freely. Stopping you think of the different hymns that we have. At Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my bird and soul found liberty at Calvary. We're told to delight in Micah in the mercy of God. Mercy can be shown in different ways, meeting the physical needs of someone. Obviously, we talked about that. Also, meeting their spiritual needs. 
having pity on the lost. Do you have pity on the lost? Or do you just complain about the behavior of the lost? Do you look at non-Christians? Oh, look at those people. How disgusting. They need to clean their act up. Or do you truly have pity on their souls? Do we rebuke sin? 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men in meekness, instructing those that oppose him. If God, perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We're to confront people with their sin so that they can receive God's forgiveness and His mercy. You know, you don't sin and get away with it. It doesn't happen. You may be sitting here this morning caught in some sin. You know it's wrong. God knows it's wrong. Maybe the person you're, you're involved with in this sin is wrong. You all know it's wrong. And you think somehow that you're hiding it. You're not. God sees it. And He'll deal with it. Are we praying for others? Are we praying for unbelievers? Are we praying for believers that God would show His mercy to them? Do we pray for the lost? Do we preach the gospel as a fourth way that we can show mercy in a spiritual way? Or are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we afraid to bring it up with our friends, with our family, because they get offended? Well, yeah, that's what's going to happen when you preach the gospel and you preach it in a biblical way. It's going to be an offense. <laughs> if you try to make it anything other than offense, you're not preaching the gospel. It's interesting to me as we close that the result of all this mercy when God gives us His mercy, then we become merciful. And as we become merciful, what happens? He gives us more mercy. And it's just this vicious circle that goes round and round and round. It's kind of like when you drive your car. What happens when you drive your car? If you're a mechanic, you know. What happens? The alternator charges the battery. So the next time you start your car, the battery, the electrical system's functioning. An individual in our church hasn't driven his car for a long time. Brand new car. Brand new battery. Went out to start it just to see if it still worked. Dead. Why? Hadn't been driving it. Probably months, six months. Just sitting there. What happened? The battery wasn't receiving a charge. Wouldn't work. You have to first receive God's mercy. And then you become merciful. And then as a result of you becoming merciful, God gives you more mercy. And it's, it just keeps going and going and going. And it's given to us as a free gift by God. God gives us His mercy as a gift. It's not something you earn. It's just a gift. He gives it to us. The reason He gives it to us is because we need it. <laughs> we need the mercy of God. One of the old kings of Saxon one time, they went out with an army and they put down this rebellion in this distant province of his kingdom. And when he quelled the insurrection and kind of got things under control, up in the archway around the castle, he put this big candle. And he lit this candle. And when he lit the candle, he announced with a herald to all those who had been in rebellion against him, all those who had surrendered, who were now captive, if they took an oath of loyalty to his kingdom, he would spare them. He wouldn't have them killed. But that offer was only good as long as that candle was lit in the archway. As soon as the candle burned down and it was out, the deal was off. And you were going to be killed. 
See, the king offered his clemency, his mercy, but it was limited to the life of that candle. He had to do it within a given time. See, our God offers us mercy. It's abundant to pay for all of our sin. He offers us forgiveness, but you have to understand it's done in His way. It's done through the life of His Son. It's done through the cross. There's no other way. There's no back door. Let me ask you this morning, have you received His mercy? Have you received His payment for your sin? Have you received our Savior's clemency, His pardon for our sin? It's not too late, even this morning, to cry out to Him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to be broken over my sin. I want to experience Your mercy. I want to experience Your grace. I want to experience the forgiveness that I can have through Christ. Christians, I ask you this question in closing. Do you see God's mercy evident in your life? Or do you just see kind of a cold callousness toward those who offend you? Are you carrying grudges against someone who offended you at one time and yet you're embracing God's mercy? You can't do that. You can't do that. It's inconsistent. You go before God. You ask Him to heal that hurt, whatever it was. And you ask Him to give you the ability through His sovereign Spirit, through His grace in your life, to be merciful in that situation. I guarantee you He will. And that burden will be lifted. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let's stand together as the worship team comes. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we pray that, Lord, as we look at Your mercy, Father, that we would see it evidenced in our life. Lord, if there's any here this morning who've yet to cry out to You, who's yet to embrace Your love, Your forgiveness, Your, forgi- your, your grace in lieu of their sin, Lord, we, I pray that You would do that work in their heart that You would help them to stop trusting in their own goodness, their own righteousness. That's not going to get them anywhere. But Lord, I pray that they would cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive my sin, God. Transform my heart. And for us Christians, Lord, I pray that we would be more compassionate, be more merciful to those around us. Maybe that neighbor across the street that gets on our nerves with the loud music and crazy kids and ungodly lifestyle, Lord, that we would have pity on them, that we would pray for them, that You would give us opportunity to reach out to them with the Gospel of Christ. What a statement of Your sovereignty. What a statement of Your grace and forgiveness. You see a family like that transformed by Your power, the power of the Gospel. Help us not be ashamed. Lord, I pray that You dismiss us with Your blessing now with a song. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.